You're listening to the audio from Tuesday Night Class at CA Church, located in Coquitlam, British Columbia. We hope this teaching helps you grow in your personal relationship with Jesus Christ. All right, well, let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your kindness. Um, And Lord, we acknowledge that uh, we're living in a world that's on fire right now. Um, There's a lot of anger and a lot of challenges, um, especially south of the border. And uh, Lord, uh, you are the Prince of Peace. And the the only hope we have in all of this is a transformed heart that you can bring about. And so we do pray that you, the Prince of all peace, would um, would bring peace, would bring reconciliation, would bring racial reconciliation, would bring social reconciliation. But uh, it requires a new heart, not a heart of stone, but a heart of flesh. And so we pray to that end. We pray, Lord, would you have mercy upon us? We, we need your help. Uh, tonight, as we look at one of your servants, one of the my favorite uh, guys, uh, thank you for him, for C.S. Lewis, and we pray that you would uh, guide our conversation tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so um, what we're going to do is I'll get everybody to mute themselves, except for me and for Mike. Um, so our uh, our guide, is, if you've been in any of my classes, you know, uh, you'll know Mike Clausen. Uh, Mike is a regular teacher at uh, my Tuesday night class. And I like to think that I know probably more than most people about C.S. Lewis. <laughs> that doesn't sound funny. I came to faith through C.S. Lewis. It was through his book, and I, I just have devoured his his writings over the years. But I have met someone who knows more about C.S. Lewis than I. <laughs> and that person is Mike Clausen. And so, uh, and uh, and he, he has taught him. I know he's, he's taught Lewis in small groups uh, going way back. And uh, can can um, and and loves Lewis and loves reflecting on him. And so I asked Mike if he could share uh, with us uh, the story of uh, C.S. Lewis. And so Mike, I'm going to hand things over to you. All right, thank you, David. Um, can you guys all see that? Yeah, it looks good. Oh, well done. Okay, let me just. There we go. So just uh, a quick uh, intro. Lewis uh, talks about an author named um, George MacDonald, and uh, he talks about uh, in his book, uh, Surprised by Joy, which is his autobiography, he talks about how important George MacDonald was in setting him on the road that ended up leading him back to Jesus. Uh, just the the influence of of MacDonald's works uh, when Lewis would read them. It just it hit him in his heart. And uh, in a lot of the same ways, I think Lewis has uh, done that to me. I mean, I've been a Christian my whole life, so it's not like Lewis led me to Christ. But when I look at how my imagination has developed and how my theology has developed and ultimately how my relationship with Christ has developed, I can uh, pinpoint a lot of the uh, reasons for that due to the works of C.S. Lewis. He's just he's been uh, huge in my life. So. Yeah, being able to do this is like re- getting reacquainted with an old friend. Um, before we get started in terms of uh, his biography uh, and going through his life, um, 
what we really need to do is uh, look at three terms that you, Lewis uses uh, a lot in his books. And uh, we need to look at his definition of them because it's slightly different um, than what we might understand the definition of the particular word. The first word is imagination. And uh, I would say that probably when we think of that word, uh, we think of um, make-believe, of kids playing uh, 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 with Lego or me sitting down with my nieces and having uh, a fake uh, tea party with a couple of stuffed animals that are poor conversationalists. <laughs> um, but Overall, I think that's what we would view as uh, imagination. Lewis doesn't view imagination as, as that frivolous at all. That, that's a small part of it, but imagination uh, stands hand in hand with reason in helping us understand how the world works. Reason, our, our ability to reason and think through things, that leads us to truth. But it's our imagination, and as Lewis says, uh, putting images to this truth, that gives us meaning. And so you can't have one without the other. You need reason and you need imagination to have meaning in the world, to understand meaning in the world. So that's the first important redefinition we need to, we need to look at. The second one would be a redefinition of the, the term joy. And joy uh, from a non-Christian would just be, be happiness. Uh, for a Christian, uh, a good theological uh, definition of joy would be settled assurance that God is in control. And Lewis does arrive at that, but he talks a lot about joy uh, when he's talking about his days as an atheist. And so when he talks about joy in that sense, what uh, he, how he defines it as a, is as a desire for something that nothing in the world can satisfy. And that this longing uh, is in and of itself desirable because it points to something or someone uh, that is utterly beyond us and something that or someone that who has ultimate meaning. The final word that uh, we're going to redefine is myth. And I think it's not a word that gets used a lot today, but if people really thought about it, they'd probably think, oh, you know what, what is myth? I mean, it's like, it's like a Disney story. It's, uh, it's fantasy that has no basis in reality. It's magic. It's, um, frozen or something like that. Uh, that was That's what the definition of myth would be. And Lewis doesn't like that definition. He doesn't look at myth that way at all. For him, myth does involve the fantastic. And so for him, when he looks at myth, he looks at all these ancient stories. So uh, some of the ancient Nordic stories of Odin and Loki, or maybe some of the ancient Egyptian stories of Osiris. And, and he looks at these ancient stories and he sees that uh, all of these ancient stories uh, have glimmers of truth in them and that these glimmers of truth point to a transcendent reality. And so for him, Myth is a fantastic, though not necessarily completely fictitious story. And myth is one of the primary ways that Lewis is drawn uh, back to Christ. So let's take uh, a quick, actually it's not going to be that quick, uh, look at uh, the life of C.S. Lewis. So he was born in uh, Belfast, Ireland. 
November 29th, uh, 1898, and his parents were Albert and Florence. And Albert uh, worked in uh, in law, and so he was pretty well off. And because he was pretty well off, he could afford this huge house that uh, Lewis grew up in. And uh, you can see image, images of this house in uh, the big house in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe that the kids uh, tramp around before finding their way to Narnia. That's an image of the house that Lewis uh, grew up in. But it wasn't even the house that was so important to Lewis's early development. It was the fact that his father could afford uh, a pretty decent library. And uh, Lewis, as soon as he learned to read, just started devouring books. One of the reasons he devoured books is because he really only had one friend in the world, and that was his brother Warren. And at a, when Warren turned nine, he was sent off to boarding school, and Lewis was seven at this point. So for two years, uh, between ages seven and, and nine, Lewis basically had no friends. All he had were the tutors that his father hired to come and educate him, um, tramping around the, the house uh, and, and with his imagination and um, the books. And so he, he still considered this uh, a very safe uh, part of his life. The problem is, is that it didn't last. And when he was nine, his mother died. Uh, she had had cancer for a few years, and uh, things went south very, very quickly uh, when he turned around the time when he turned nine. And uh, he describes this in Surprised by Joy. Uh, With my mother's death, all settled happiness, all that was tranquil and reliable disappeared from my life. There was no more of the old security. It was sea and islands now. The great continent had sunk like Atlantis. And so with his mother dying, suddenly one of the major foundations of his life had been stripped away. And interestingly, this was one of the first steps that ended up taking him away from Jesus, taking him uh, to the point where he started, where he became an atheist. Uh, He acknowledged the fact that his mother dying had caused him so much pain that it drove him away from God. The second major thing that drove him away from God happened two weeks after his mother died when he was sent to boarding school. His father uh, was very conscientious about uh, both Lewis and Warren's um, uh, upbringing. He wanted the best for him, for both of them, but he was really bad at understanding their emotional needs. And so in his view, when you turned nine, you went to boarding school. And so it didn't matter that his mother had just died off Lewis was sent to boarding school. And in Surprised by Joy, he he spends a good deal of time actually talking about the various boarding schools. And uh, he gives um, nicknames to the worst of them. And uh, this first boarding school, it wasn't the worst one, but it was pretty close. But uh, he he basically describes these all these boarding schools as, as like elements of hell. They were a special kind of hell for him. Now, they were useful in that they did uh, educate him. They did teach him to think. The problem was is that they also uh, killed his uh, emotional life. And so the fact that he was starting to think and starting to reason at the same time as he uh, was feeling in exile and he was angry at his father for sending him uh, to these terrible boarding schools, um, this started to coalesce in him walking away from, from Christianity. Um, one of the biographers I read um, 
thought that one of the main reasons that Lewis decided to become an atheist is because his father was a pretty committed uh, member of the Protestant Church of Ireland. And so because he was so angry at his father for sending him to boarding schools, it created such a rift that becoming an atheist was the biggest rebellion that young Lewis could uh, could accomplish. As he uh, as he grew in his uh, academic skills, as his mind was sharpened, um, especially under the tutelage of a man who Lewis uh, credits with uh, with really helping him to become an academic, a man named Kirkpatrick, um, he became very very convinced in his atheism, and he writes. Um, before he uh, attends Oxford, he writes a letter to one of his friends, and he says, I believe in no religion. There's absolutely no proof for any of them. And from a philosophical standpoint, Christianity is not even the best. So Lewis at this time started to become really uh, in, obsessed with uh, Norse mythology, and he read a lot of Norse mythology, and he looked at the Norse mythology, and to him, that was the ideal religion. You know, the, 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 the courage and the valor and the uh, not turning away in the face of danger that's exhibited by the characters of Odin and Thor and, and Loki. Uh, well, maybe not Loki. Um, Odin and Thor at least. And, um, he just, he looked at these and he, he's like, if you're gonna have a religion, at least have a good one like that. Don't have one of these, uh, kind of, uh, pansy pap religions like, like Christianity is. His um, atheism was solidified even further uh, after he uh, entered Oxford. So he entered Oxford at a particularly inauspicious time. It was World War I. And one of the things the British Army needed was officers. And so they started conscripting um, university uh, uh, men. And so Lewis was conscripted uh, into the infantry. So he was an officer, but he was an officer in the infantry. So he saw just some horrible things in the trenches. And he came to the conclusion that there was no way there could be a god that would allow the horrors of trench warfare or uh, these clouds of, of mustard gas uh, just killing everybody or people being blown up by artillery shells. That, like All of these horrors proved there couldn't possibly be a god. After the war was over, um, Lewis uh, ended up back in Oxford, and so he finished his education and uh, fortunately ended up getting a job in Oxford. And uh, all this time, his reason, his mind was being sharpened. Um, and what he found, uh, to his chagrin, was that he started having some serious questions about atheism. Uh, first of all, he realized paradoxically that uh, he was angry with God for not existing uh, and equally angry at God for creating such a terrible world. And he couldn't, he couldn't uh, justify these two competing thoughts in his mind, and yet he couldn't get rid of them. One of his favorite quotes, but one which he ended up uh, tossing away because it just didn't uh, answer his questions anymore, was by this uh, Roman philosopher Lucretius. And uh, it, was, it was done uh, poetically, and it's, Had God designed the world, it would not be a world so frail and faulty as we see. And Lewis started to realize that this was an insufficient uh, answer for what he needed from the world. And he started to uh, really analyze his anger at God not existing. And he realized 
The primary reason he was angry that God didn't exist was because if there wasn't a transcendent being who gave an absolute objective moral law, then he had no way to appeal to a higher judge for things like fairness and unfairness, uh, good and evil, justice and injustice. In an atheistic worldview, all moral truth is subjective. And if all moral truth is subjective, the best you can say about the horrible things that happen in life is, I didn't really like that. Probably more so than anything, though, uh, literature drew Lewis away from atheism and started him, as we'll see in a little bit, on the road uh, to Jesus. Um, the thing is, is that Lewis read a ton. And uh, what he realized is that the most interesting writers were Christians. The most interesting stories that he read were the Christian ones, or at the least the ones that had Christian elements in them. When he would read an atheistic writer like uh, Voltaire or like Gibbon or like Shaw, uh, he's like, you know, they're entertaining. They, they, they may have some interesting ideas, but ultimately they're pretty shallow. They don't have a really good view of the world. Their, their worldview is simplistic. And so ultimately, everything good in literature that he liked seemed to tie back to, to Christianity. And it irked him that the best writers that he read, uh, guys like George MacDonald and G.K. Chesterton, it irked him that they were Christians. And he tried to, uh, as time went on, to, to ignore that part of it, but it just kept on uh, hammering in home to him that uh, their faith was a critical part of why uh, their writing was so impactful in his life. So we're going to get into breakout groups now. And uh, if you guys want to discuss for a few minutes, uh, what genre of stories do you like to read or, because we're all watching Netflix now, watch? Uh, so biographies, sci-fi, reality TV, news, uh, and what kind of stories draw you closest to Jesus? So spend uh, two or three, four minutes uh, discussing that, and uh, then we'll uh, all get back together. How do we put people in breakout groups? Do I have to do that? I'm on it. You're on it? Cool. I'm on it. Here we go. I hope. Seems to be working. Okay, Merle, you haven't joined yet. Uh, oh, there we go. Merle's in it. Ah, I think everything's going. Uh, let's see, Grant. Nestor, there we go. <laughs> Nestor, I think I got you in here twice. You logged on twice. 
All right, I think I have everybody in a group. If you uh, if you're not in a group and you can hear me, uh, oh, hang on. Can anyone hear me who's in the main session who wants to chat? There's uh, about five or six people that did maybe by choice didn't go into a group, which is fine. But if you didn't get into a group and you want to be in a group, we, we can chat. Or not. That's okay. I know Jerry doesn't like being in groups.
All right. Everybody's making their way back. So I've always wanted to know, Ken and Jennifer, where are you guys sitting on your back? You got your mic, you're muted, so I'm guessing it's your back. We're sitting on our porch. On your porch. Yeah, in yeah. the back. I noticed that once I well, pointed you out, then you start swinging back and forth. Are you on your back? Like uh, uh, in your backyard? That's what, it's very bad Zoom etiquette, probably because we're moving. It's a distracting. No, no, it's all good. You guys just seem really relaxed every time I see you everywhere. You say, oh man, they got a, a, a nice setup out there. Yeah, that's cool. <laughs> all right, I think everybody's here. If you're not here, put up your hand. That joke never gets old, does it? Uh, okay, so the most important need- thing, Mike, are you there? Yes, I'm here. Okay, I'll, let, I'll hand things over to you. Sorry, I just got a. I lost my uh, Zoom window. I got to uh, reshare here. That's okay. Yeah, it just went all black on me. Um, just one second here. Where is my share button? You see it in the middle, at the bottom? No, I just it all went. Uh, I I can see your face, and that's it. Stop video. No mute. Oh, there we I minimized it. <laughs> I'm in tech support, and I have no idea what I'm doing here. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. All right. Yeah. So before we uh, get into um, or continue on with Lewis's um uh being drawn back to Jesus uh it's helpful if we look at his uh his family life and when i say his family life i'm not actually talking about his father or at this time uh, at least in the early years his, his brother warren uh, he was uh estranged from both of them and um though he did uh, fix his estrangement from his brother. He really never fixed his estrangement from his father. Um, He just, he could never forgive his father for sending him away so soon after um, his mother had died. And, and yet he had developed family. Interestingly enough, Uh, he had made friends with a man named Patty Moore and Patty uh, died in 1918. And uh, before he died, him and Lewis made a pact that whomever survived, uh, the survivor would take uh, care of the um, the dead person's family. And so when Patty died, uh, he had left a mother and a sister behind. Uh, so the mother was Jane and the sister was Maureen. And the father, uh, Patty's father, was basically estranged from the whole family, so he didn't factor into this at all. But uh, Lewis basically adopted Jane and Maureen as his family. If you read some of the letters of Lewis, uh, whenever he talks about his family, he's pretty much always talking about uh, Jane and Maureen. He's almost never talking about his father or his brother. His father dies in uh, 1929, and uh, there's a uh, element of guilt that Lewis uh, feels there because uh, he went to visit his father, and then it seems like his father was going doing better, and so he left. And like 
when he was on the boat back to uh, back to England, his father uh, actually died. So Lewis felt guilty that his father uh, died alone. Um, Warren, however, uh, comes back into his life shortly after his father dies. They have to deal with the estate, and so Warren leaves the army. And uh, between the two of them, they end up. Uh, purchasing a house with Jane and uh, called the Kilns, and the three of them live in this house basically until each of them uh, uh, pass away. So we talked about the problems that Lewis had with atheism. Um, when we look at what drew him uh, to Christianity, and I mentioned this at the beginning, one of the primary things that uh, started Lewis on his journey back to Christ was a book of George MacDonald's called uh, Fantasties. And it's a modern fairy tale. And George MacDonald was a theologian and uh, author of the 19th century. And so he had woven in Christian imagery all throughout uh, the Fantasties. And Lewis, as a uh, young man of 18 years old, is reading this, and it's just, it's continually uh, hitting him in the heart. It's continually uh, causing these feelings of what he defines later as joy, this, this yearning for something transcendent, something other than him. And he says that at that moment, his imagination was, in a sense, baptized. His imagination started on uh, the journey towards Christ, and it took his reason another 13 or 14 years to catch up. And he realized that everything he loved in his life was from his imagination. It was story, it was poetry, it was mythology. Uh, when he looked at what he actually believed, though, this, this reality that atheism demanded of him, uh, he found it uh, glib and shallow, uh, and that led him to believing that reality was grim and meaningless. I, this is a funny quote that uh, Lewis says later, that... Um, Many of the books that he read drew him to Christianity. And uh, in reading Chesterton as in reading MacDonald, I didn't know what I was letting myself in for. A young man who wishes to remain a sound atheist cannot be too careful of his reading. There are traps everywhere. Bibles laid open, millions of surprises, as Herbert says, fine nets and stratagems. God is, if I may say it, very unscrupulous. And so he's not given saying an insulting God here. What he's saying is that... Um, if you're reading a book and you see something that is true, that truth is transcendent. And so that truth is God's truth. And it doesn't matter what we're reading or where we're reading it. If there is something true, that truth points to God. And so if you're an atheist, you have to be so careful of what you uh, read, because anytime you read truth, it's pointing you towards God. And Lewis realized this, and there is an element to which it frustrated him because he so wanted to stay an atheist. He was so ardently against Christianity. And yet, as his reason uh, drew him along the journey, he couldn't deny the fact that the Christian, or at least the theistic view that there was a creator God made far more sense than the atheistic view of the world. The existence of a creator God offered not only a more plausible explanation of how the world worked, but it offered a more desirable explanation of how the world worked. He wanted to believe it, even though he wanted also at the same time to remain an atheist. 
And so there was this struggle in his mind between uh, his desire to remain an atheist and the fact that he couldn't rationally assent to it anymore. And uh, finally, um, he quotes in uh, Surprised by Joy, you must picture me alone in that room at Magdalen. It was a college at Oxford. Uh, night after night, feeling whenever my mind lifted for even a moment, uh, the uh, steady, unrelenting approach of him who I so earnestly desired not to meet. That, that which I greatly feared had at last come upon me in the Trinity term of 1929. I gave in, admitted that God was God, knelt and prayed, perhaps that night the most dejected and reluctant convert in all England. Finally, his humility won out and he realized that he needed uh, to give in to this, that he couldn't deny it any longer. And so he uh, rejected the atheism of his youth and uh, and became a, uh, a theist. He wasn't at this point uh, a believer in Jesus. He believed in a creator God and he believed that that creator God had set the world up in certain ways but he still couldn't get his mind around how Jesus fit into this, why he was significant. And this didn't really connect with him until he uh, went on a walk with two of his friends, um, Hugo Dyson and J.R.R. Tolkien. And it was really Tolkien that uh, that drew him uh, past the finish line, that got him uh, to the realization that Jesus was the incarnate Son of God. Because Lewis was talking, he was like, I don't get it. It doesn't make any sense. It's no different than any of these other mythological stories. And Tolkien points out, pointed out that uh, Christianity was different because it was a true myth, that there was a truth in the story of, of Christianity, and that you could see this truth rippling out to all these other mythological stories. You can see in this myth of Odin, um, where Odin hangs on a tree, and that points to the crucifixion of Christ. You can see in the death and the resurrection of Osiris that that points to the death and resurrection of Jesus. And so you can see God using this idea of mythology to draw people to him, using this idea of story to draw people to him. And it was like a light turned on for Lewis, and uh, very shortly afterwards he committed his life to Christ. And he writes a letter shortly after he became a Christian explaining uh, to one of his friends uh, what he believed. And he says, the story of Christ is simply a true myth, a myth working on us in the same way as the others, but with this tremendous difference that it really happened. Uh, Lewis continued to teach at Oxford until 1954. And after that, he went uh, to Cambridge. And uh, now that he was a Christian, he started to use uh, his giftings, especially his giftings of uh, both oratory and, and writing to uh, for the for the greater glory of God. Uh, he still did produce academic works, and these academic works were generally well received. But his fame uh, came from the stuff that he did for uh, for the common person that. Um, 
his stories uh, like like Narnia and Mere Christianity garnered him far more fame and attention than anything he ever did as an academic, which interestingly enough uh, irked both professional theologians because they were uh, ticked off that this lay theologian, I mean, Lewis wasn't a professional theologian. He was an English lit professor. Uh, so this English lit professor could write a theology book that was so uh, more widely accepted than anything they did. And he also irked the Oxford establishment. They believed that he was selling out that rather than be a pure academic and just uh, be there for, for academia and write academic works for that are intended for university students, he was writing stuff that the, uh, the regular person could read and understand. And uh, it actually ended up getting him ostracized from most of the Oxford community. Pretty much the only person of note at Oxford that gave Lewis any time of day um, was J.R.R. Tolkien. It's because they, at the time, were, were friends. In one of the biographies uh, that I read, uh, the biographer uh, ended up talking to somebody that knew Lewis during their time when they both worked at Oxford. And uh, he asked what, what this guy thought of, of Lewis. And the guy is like, oh, man, Lewis is one of the most evil men to darken the doors of Oxford. He's like, but so many people love him. Why, why do you say he's evil? And he's like, well, first of all, I mean, we all knew he was just doing it for the money and the fame, that he was, he was producing these books for the money and the fame. Uh, but secondly, and this might be even worse, uh, he was one of the most brilliant men I ever met, and he was one of the greatest orators I ever met. And what did he use those gifts for? To delude people into becoming Christians. And this attitude was was rife amongst uh, the people uh, amongst the uh, people in Oxford, and so it's one of the primary reasons Lewis ended up uh, going to Cambridge for the last uh, years of his life. While he was at Oxford, though, uh, especially in the 30s and the early 40s. Um, one of the most important groups he was a part of was actually an informal literary group called the Inklings. And the two uh, kind of uh, guiding lights of the Inklings were J.R. Tolkien and C.S. Lewis. There was some other more important people that were involved, like Charles William, but uh, uh, Lewis and Tolkien were kind of the guiding lights. And what this uh, literary group did is that they would bring their their writings in and they would read them to the group and they would get constructive feedback back from the group. And this was important for Lewis. It did help him um, in some of his earlier writings, uh, screw tape letters and um, the problem of pain being some of the main ones, even some of the earlier uh, versions of Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. But interestingly enough, uh, it was probably most important for Tolkien. Tolkien says there a number of times that if it wasn't for the Inklings and more specifically the encouragement of C.S. Lewis, The Lord of the Rings would have never been written. And uh, I wish these were my pictures. Um, I couldn't find my pictures of the Eagle and Child. It's the pub where the Inklings met for the first uh, number of years of their existence. Um, yeah, I went there in 2006. Uh, it was enjoyable. I got to sit in the same uh, seat or at least in the same area that Tolkien and Lewis were. Uh, the food was okay. The beer was great. The bird and the baby. Yeah, they called it the bird and the baby. That was their nickname for it. Um, now that Lewis had started uh, to gain fame in, in Britain and uh, it accelerated after he um, 
produced mere Christianity. And we'll talk a little bit about mere Christianity near the end, but it was basically uh, condensed a number of talks that he gave about apologetics and theology. And it was popular in Britain, but it became incredibly popular when it was published in the States. And uh, one of the people that uh, really connected with it was a woman named Joy Davidman, um, Joy Davidman Gresham, before she got divorced. Um, and she was uh, an atheist that became a Christian, and she read Mere Christianity and it just connected with her. And uh, connected with her so much that she sent Lewis a letter, and to her infinite surprise, Lewis wrote back. And so they started this dialogue um, by letter uh, over the next few years. While this was happening, her marriage was disintegrating because her husband was uh, both an alcoholic and an adulterer and eventually booted her out in favor of her cousin. And when that happened, uh, she had already been to England and met Lewis a couple times. She took her two boys and she moved to England permanently and uh, built up a friendship with Lewis. Um, Around 56, she was going to be deported, so Lewis uh, entered into a civil marriage with her, and he was intending it to be um, purely platonic. They were just friends. That changed uh, later in the year when she was diagnosed with breast cancer, and uh, they diagnosed it as uh, a malignant. They couldn't, they couldn't operate on it, so this was basically a death sentence. And Lewis says that uh, it suddenly all changed for him when he realized he was going to lose her. And uh, he got one of his friends to, who was a priest or Anglican priest to uh, come in and marry them um, as they thought she was on her deathbed. Uh, as it turned out, uh, a miracle happened and uh, she went to her cancer, went into remission. And so they lived together as man and wife for three years. And some of Lewis's most um, uh, solid works, some of his best works, what he would consider his best writing, uh, happened in those three years when him and Joy were were man and wife. Uh, unfortunately, uh, it wasn't to last. Um, in uh, 1960, uh, the cancer came back and she passed away. And after she passed away, Lewis wrote uh, A Grief Observed. And I got to say, for me, A Grief Observed was, it's a visceral and it's a gritty book. It's far different than I think anything else Lewis wrote. Um, but man, if you're, it's helped me uh, a lot when I've gone through some, some difficult times. And so I'd strongly recommend if anyone's going through some difficult stuff that uh, A Grief Observed is, it's, it's, it's good to read. Um, just as an aside, there are uh, two stories that uh, kind of lay out the relationship between Lewis and Joy. And uh, one of them uh, I haven't read, and it's called um, Becoming Mrs. Lewis. And it was published a couple years ago. David, yes, David's given a thumbs up. Um, so I haven't read it yet, but it is now on my list of things that uh, I need to read. Uh, the other one is Shadowlands, and uh, I never saw the play, but there was a movie made in 93 with uh, Anthony Hopkins as Lewis and Deborah Winger as as Joy, and it was decidedly okay. I think it had some good points because for a Hollywood movie, it actually discussed some spiritual stuff, but, I mean, the ending implies that Lewis lost his faith and just, just all sorts of... They, they mushed both of uh, Joy's kids into one kid. Uh, anyway... Well, the, uh, one of the sons didn't want to be portrayed in it. Oh, there's that one. I didn't know yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. 
The Becoming Mrs. Lewis is a New York Times bestseller from that came out uh, just over a year ago. And it's a novelization of the story of Joy and C.S. And, and C.S. Lewis. Mm-hmm. Very romantic, but a lot of really interesting uh, parts in it. Uh, so uh, Karen read it, and then she uh, lent me it, and I, I read it. It's 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 a it's a fun read, yeah. So worth worth taking a look at. Okay. I'm just looking at the time now. I think we're going to have to skip our second discussion time. I don't know if we're going to have time. I'd like to get uh, it done as close to 8 o'clock as possible. I don't want to keep you guys uh, longer than uh, than we agreed upon. Come on, we um, like the discussion time. I don't. Uh, <laughs> so, like that. so what we can do is why don't we push to 8 o'clock. Yeah. So we'll, we'll, do we'll stop at 8 and then – we could uh, just kind of carry on with an informal discussion afterwards if for people yeah. want to stick around. That, that's a good idea. So we'll do the discussion time afterwards, and if people need to leave, then, then uh, you can leave. Um, yeah, so unfortunately, Lewis didn't long survive his, uh, his wife. In 61, his kidneys started failing, and he started suffering from blood poisoning. In 63, he had a heart attack. Uh, which forced his resignation from Cambridge. And on November 22nd of 1963, he collapsed in his room and he died minutes later. Uh, interesting point of trivia. Who else died on November 22nd, 1963? Kennedy. Kennedy. Yeah. Who else too? I can't remember who else. Aldous Huxley. Uh, Aldous Huxley, who wrote uh, Brave New World, and uh, JFK uh, both died on the same day. And as an aside, Peter Kreeft wrote a book uh, called Between Heaven and Hell, and it's the imagination of Lewis, JFK, and uh, Huxley having this discussion in kind of a, a purgatorial waiting room after they've all died. Um, the discussion is about theology and politics. And all. It's, I, I found it a really interesting book. So we're going to look at uh, some of Lewis's works now, three of Lewis's works specifically. And uh, yeah, we'll skip the questions for discussion for now. Um, the first one is Chronicles of Narnia. And uh, when Lewis uh, was writing uh, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, which is the first book, he intended it to be a Christian myth. So all of the stuff that he loved about these mythological stories of the Norse mythological stories and the uh, Egyptian mythological stories, all that stuff that he loved, but overtly Christian and pointing children uh, directly towards Jesus. And uh, so there's, there's kind of this common theme amongst all seven books uh, in each book except for a horse and his boy, you have children that are transported from magically from earth to the land of Narnia. Um, there's usually a quest for them to complete when they arrive in Narnia, and this quest teaches them Christian virtues. And Aslan, who's the Jesus figure, uh, always uh, makes an appearance, and sometimes he dramatically intervenes, and sometimes he just shows up to encourage the children to continue following instructions that he had given them uh, previously. Uh, the theme of imagination, as Lewis defined it right near the beginning of uh, the class today, uh, it runs throughout the books. Uh, and as I said, he, he made this as a mythology. And it's most evident in the character of Aslan. And I love this quote from The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe when they're talking about Aslan. And the children find out that he's a lion. And the first question is, well, if he's a lion, is he safe? And uh, 
Mr. Beaver says no, and so Lucy says, then he isn't safe. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good, and he's the king, I tell you. Just this imagery of Christ that shows up that's, that's accessible for children. And he weaves uh, Christian themes throughout, uh, throughout the book. Uh, there's temptation in pretty much every book. There's a point where the children uh, have to make a choice uh, for good or for evil. And if they choose uh, good, if they uh, choose the way uh, of Aslan, then ultimately things go well for them. And if they choose uh, against Aslan, there are consequences, and the consequences are generally negative. Uh, there's divine redemption, and uh, we'll take a look at divine redemption when we look specifically at the imagery of crucifixion and resurrection. And uh, there's faith in Christ. Aslan will give the children instructions and then leave, and they will have to have faith that when things get difficult, that the best way is to still follow uh, the, the rules that Aslan gave them. And finally, there's courage. I mean, there's many other themes as well, but there's courage that when Aslan leaves them, they're terrified. And yet the idea that Aslan is still there in some form, that he still has their back, um, that gives them courage to continue on despite, um, despite fear. There's also uh, yearnings of joy uh, sprinkled throughout the book. Uh, as the children, there's just this yearning for the transcendent. As the children mature, um, they find to their horror they're no longer permitted entrance into Narnia. And it's uh, well spoken by Lucy, one of the characters in The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, at the end when uh, Aslan's telling her that she can't come back to Narnia anymore. And she's, I don't care about Narnia. I care about you. How can you tell me I'm never going to be able to see you again? And that's when Aslan tells her that uh, he has he is a he has a name in on Earth, and that she has to come to know him by that name. And so this yearning uh, for the transcendent is fulfilled in the person of Jesus. And we see this yearning fulfilled in an ultimate sense at the end of the book, the last battle. Um, after uh, Narnia is, is destroyed, they suddenly realize they've arrived in heaven. And in heaven is the best of Narnia and the best of earth as well. And uh, the true heaven and the true earth are, uh, or sorry, the true Narnia and the true earth are in heaven. And, uh, and they see Aslan in his true form. And so this yearning that they've had their entire lives is finally f- fulfilled. When I was a, oops, when I was a kid, um, some imagery really hit me more than pretty much anything else. And I think it's one of these things that uh, um, really connected me uh, uh, to Lewis and, and, led me uh, further on in my walk with the Lord. And one of the big ones was the uh, crucifixion and the resurrection imagery in Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Uh, so there's the four Pevensey children. They're the main characters. Um, and Edmund is the younger brother. And he's a traitor. He has betrayed them. Uh, he's betrayed Aslan. He's betrayed uh, the army of Narnia. And he's betrayed his siblings uh, to the White Witch, who's the personification of evil and the devil. And uh, the White Witch comes to Aslan and reminds Aslan that by the law of Aslan's father, um, who's the emperor from beyond the sea, that all traitors belong to her. 
that Edmund's life and his blood belong to her. And she wants him. And Aslan takes her aside and they have a discussion. And you don't know what that discussion is. But at the end of it, Aslan comes back to Edmund and says, you're good. You don't need to go with her. You find out in the next chapter what that uh, agreement was that um, basically Aslan offered his life in exchange for Edmund's. And so the White Witch kills him, and the only witnesses are uh, the two sisters, Lucy and uh, and Susan. And they they see him dead, and then they see him come back to life. And he explains that because he gave his life willingly uh, when he was innocent, um, that's one of the reasons why he uh, is resurrected. So this imagery as a kid that really struck me and it really pointed me towards the death and resurrection of Jesus. Um, we're running out of time, so I'm going to skip creation and fall of humanity. But I, my favorite book of the seven is The Horse and His Boy. And I think what really impacted me is uh, the story of Shasta. He's the main character. And uh, he's continually drawn north. So he lives far to the south of Narnia. And yet he's continually yearning towards uh, the north. And he finds out later that that's where his true home is. And so he's yearning for home. And he finds this uh, talking horse. And so him and the horse go on this long journey. Um, and they keep encountering problems. And there's almost always a lion involved when there's a problem. And uh, Shasta starts blaming these lions for all these problems he's encountering. And uh, he comes to a point where he's walking in the darkness alone. And uh, something appears beside him. And he doesn't know what it is. And after he's assured that it's not a ghost and it's not going to eat him, he starts uh, get, telling the the person his life story, and he says that you know I'm so uh, I'm so my life has been so unfortunate, and the voice is like oh, I don't think you're unfortunate at all. And he's like how can you say that? Look at all the times the lions have nearly eaten me, and uh, the voice says there was never multiple lions, there was one lion, and that lion was me, and I was using these uh, these moments to continue to uh, shepherd you north. That uh, though you don't know it, these difficult times were important because they were drawing you home. And uh, as a kid, that just that really hit me. Uh, the next book that uh, I'm going to go through really, really quickly is uh, the Screw Tape Letters, and uh, it's a satirical Christian apologetic, and it's done in a mythological style. It's not intended to give us any real insight into how demons work. What it's intended to do is point us towards the person of Jesus. And the way that Lewis wrote it is it's as if a senior demon is writing a letter to a junior demon about how best to tempt the patient who's uh, a British man. Um, in the letter... Uh, Screwtape gives Wormwood uh, good advice about how best uh, to first keep the man from becoming a Christian, and then when that fails, to keep him from becoming an effective Christian. And uh, so if you ever read the Screwtape letters, you need to realize that um, uh, most terms are reversed. So when they refer to Satan, they call him our father below. God is the enemy. Uh, humanity is objectified. And uh, there is this yearning of joy throughout the book. And it's interesting because when it's uh, the human, it's the human yearning for God. And when he talks about the yearnings that the demons have, it's this unsatisfied gnawing hunger that can never be satiated. 
Um, yeah, we talked about true myth already. So uh, two of the themes that really uh, strike me, and there's pretty much 31 different themes because there's 31 letters, but uh, the two that really hit me when I was doing this with my Bible study group uh, earlier this year was uh, spiritual dryness. And so Screwtape is telling uh, Wormwood that you need to convince your patient that when he's going through a dry period, that it's forever, that the, it's never going to come back. And because it's never going to come back, he doesn't need to be obedient. And he tells Wormwood, our cause is never more in danger than when a human, no longer desiring but still intending to do our enemy's will, looks round upon a universe from which every trace of him seems to have vanished and asks why he has been forsaken and still obeys. And that just, it. every time I read that, it really hits me. And uh, another part that... Um, really impacts me because I think it describes life um, generally in, in North America. Uh, Wormwood is trying to uh, come up with some ideas to get uh, his patient involved in these grandiose, over-the-top sins. Uh, you know, maybe get him uh, to, to commit a murder or something like that. Screwtape's like, no, 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 no. The safest road to hell is the gradual one. The gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, and without signposts. You don't need to get your uh, patient involved in these grandiose sins. Just keep them comfortable and keep them at ease. Keep them from thinking about things of eternal, val- uh, eternal significance. As an aside, if you ever uh, get want to listen to uh, the Screwtape Letters uh, um, audiobook, get the one uh, narrated by John Cleese. It's uh, fantastic. Uh, we're going to wrap up with Mere Christianity. And uh, it was based on a series of uh, BBC radio talks that Lewis did between 41 and 44. And it's one of the most popular Christian apologetic texts of the 20th century. Uh, it's split into four books if you haven't read it. And uh, it's interesting because the four books kind of mirror Lewis's uh, journey towards Jesus. It starts with him arguing uh, for the existence of God. So it's almost like he's discussing with old atheistic Lewis uh, why the importance of God existing uh, is so critical. Um, and so he argues for the existence of God from the argument of morality. The idea that good and evil, uh, justice and injustice are irrational unless you have somebody who is transcendent from the universe who sets these laws up. Uh, book two, um, he might be talking to theistic Lewis before he becomes a Christian because he talks about some competing views on the nature of God. And after discussing some alternatives, including pantheism and atheism, he ends up, he ends this book, um, talking about the necessity of Jesus. Uh, book three is uh, on ethics, so once he becomes a Christian, how then should he live? And book four is more kind of esoteric view uh, um, discussion of Christian theology, and uh, most theologians uh, agree that book four is probably the weakest part of mere Christianity.
Lewis uses imagination um, throughout mere Christianity. He keeps referring to it, uh, the idea of a true myth, a true story that points people uh, to Jesus. And it's one of the reasons why he says you can look at all these other religions and all these other stories, and though they won't say, they, they don't have salvific power, they still point towards Jesus. They still have elements of truth that point people towards Jesus. But he acknowledges that only Christianity is both necessarily and sufficiently true. And he talks about joy and the yearning that we feel and how we are designed to run on Jesus. We are designed to be in relationship with him and that our lives don't make sense unless we are in relationship with him, unless we are satisfying our yearning for the eternal in the person of Jesus Christ. I'm going to end on this quote. God made us. A car is made to run on petrol, and it would not run properly on anything else. Now, God designed the human machine to run on himself. He himself is the fuel our spirits were designed to burn. That's why it's no good asking God to make us happy in our own way without bothering about religion. God cannot give us a happiness and peace apart from himself. Because it is not there, there is no such thing. And it just strikes me that, uh, um, yeah, ultimately, our lives only make sense when they're lived um, in the context of the truth that Jesus provides for us. So, yeah, um, I'll close in prayer. You want me to close in prayer, David? And yeah, then, well, yeah, what we could do? People want to uh, leave. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, what, what, why don't you close in prayer and then. Um... And then if if you want to go, you can go. If you if you want to linger around for 10 more minutes, uh, I think we could have uh, some really fun conversation about a lot of this stuff. So, um, yeah, it's up to you, though, because we want to honor your time. So, Mike, close in prayer, and then we'll, we'll go from here. Sure. Let's pray. Lord, we just thank you for your servant, Lewis, and we thank you um, how you drew him out of the uh, bankrupt morality of atheism. You drew him to you, Lord. Um, and that throughout his life, we, you could see this, we can see this journey of him uh, coming home, God, and that home is in you. And we just ask, Lord, that you would help us to uh, keep our eyes focused on you, that when we uh, feel this yearning, we, we would remember that this yearning is only found, uh, that there's no satisfaction found outside of you, Lord, that is only in you that we have the satisfaction for this yearning in our life. Help us to be faithful and obedient um, in our lives, God, and to be witnesses to the people around us. In your name we pray. Amen. Thanks for participating in this class. If you've been engaging in classes online, but you're not a part of a church community, we would love to have you join us. You can go to cachurch.ca to find out more about getting involved in the life and mission of CA Church.